Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you. We figure out what your operations are. We figure out what your processes are. We figure out what your team doesn't like to do. And we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do. It's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? Um, what are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Uh, our website is invisible.co uh, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plainsight Podcast. My guest today is Grace Madlick. She is the Executive Director of Operations at Invisible Technologies. Uh, already, the this is the second time we're doing an interview. Really excited to, to talk, sit down with you again and do this again. Thanks so much for having me, Stuart. I'm happy to be back. So what does it feel like now, six, seven months later, uh, when we last talked, it was just the tip of the hypergrowth. Hypergrowth was clear. <laughs> and now it's like, are we are is hypergrowth over or is there more to go? No, I think we're still launching into the stratosphere over here. What does it feel like? Um like flying in a rocket ship, like not strapped in, I guess a little bit at times. Um, also really exhilarating, really exciting. I think there, there are always two sides of the coin when you're experiencing really rapid growth in a company environment. There's the excitement, the speed, uh, the, the rate of change, which can be really invigorating and engaging too, if you're the kind of person who, who loves that. Um, and then also it's really demanding, right? Like it's physically demanding, mentally demanding, emotionally demanding. Um, so I think, you know, it's both. And then how do you personally, or how have you seen other people handle the remote side of it? Because, uh, we've, we're on zoom calls. We've got the offsite coming, uh, this week. Uh, what, what is your take on like, and that's never happened before. There's, there's a few other companies that have been able to do remote, uh, remote first sort of hyper growth but it's pretty rare. Uh, what does it feel like? How how does the remote aspect play into it? I think if I'm being perfectly honest, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the remote aspect because I've been working remote for so many years, even prior to coming to Invisible. Um, I worked remotely for an organization um, helping older adults find senior living options. I did my graduate degree remote as well. Um, pre-pandemic, I was already a remote student. And I was actually, when the pandemic hit, my experience of being a remote student actually just got better because <laughs> they were started connecting me more with students rather than just watching a recording of a lecture that happened and, and feeling like one-dimensional about it. I actually got to engage more. So um, I've been working and learning, I guess, in a remote environment for many, many years, probably like five plus years at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and so it it feels a bit second nature to me. Um, I think our team is really good at creating connection, uh, even from afar. You know, we have people in dozens and dozens of different countries and time zones. Um, and then also communication is just so key, like asynchronous communication. I mean, being really crisp and clear with uh, directions, with updates, things of that nature. And so I think it's something that we can always continue improving and it's and hyper growth necessitates that, but it's something that I do think is a real strength of ours. Mm. Um, and okay. So there was a great question I had, but I can't remember what it was. Um, let's go into AI as a mirror. Uh, this is mm -hmm. such an interesting thing because, you know, we, we can get into truth and what truth is and like AI, everybody talks about the AI being this sort of hallucination machine. Like it's, you know, making stuff up. But at the same time, if you talk to human beings, my take on it is that human beings are also a sort of a hallucination machine and they're also trying, making stuff up all the time. <laughs> uh, and so I'm curious, what, what what's your take on AI as a mirror? 
Well, first, I just I love uh, your take on humans a little bit as a hallucination machine, because it's true. I'm sure you know all the the research about um, how our current emotional state affects how we remember things, right? Um, And so, you know, that's a perfect example of how we can hallucinate. Like if I'm in a great mood when I'm remembering something in the past, I can, it colors the memory differently. Um, Obviously AI works differently and doesn't have that emotional um, capacity at this point in time, but I do, I do really adore that analogy. Can, can we talk more about emotional capacity of AI? Um, it feels like I, I did a great interview with um, uh, with AI uh, with I uh, Iukino mm, Iukino uh, yeah Iukino and uh, it was a great interview and 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 you know I've been talking to other people about it. it feels like AI is a little bit of an alien intelligence and it's funny because that's also AI um, alien intelligence like does it have emotions is it conscious uh, what do you, what are your take on this emotional aspect of AI. I mean I I don't feel like that's where we're currently at in the story. Um, I don't know where entirely where we're going with the story, um, but I wouldn't characterize like LLMs currently as having emotional capacity, um, maybe going so far as to say that they can mimic on the surface, Mm -hmm. some emotional capacity. Um, but that's very different from actually having a grounded experience of life and like feeling something for oneself and having a being an individual, you know, entity with an identity. Uh, and so, but how, how do we like, do you know the technical side of it, of, of it, like how, because there's no experience. It doesn't feel like there's an experiencer there. There's no experiencer in on the other end of the spectrum. Right. Exactly. But it, but it simulates intelligence. It simulates emotion, emotionality. Well, that's why I think of AI as it currently exists as a mirror, because in so many ways, um, AI, you know, has been trained on human data, right, from the beginning. Um, And so it's this massive, um, in some ways, a repository or like a searcher of a repository Mm -hmm. of human data. And that data is a reflection of us as humans. And it's it's working with and made up of that data and shaped by that data. Um, therefore, it is reflecting that data back to us based on how we query it, right? Okay, that's really interesting. It reminds me of Stephen Wolfram's work. Uh, he he, Stephen Wolfram is a is a fascinating guy. I'm sure you you know who he is. Uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I don't know if the listeners know who he is. He's he's on this trip about uh, Ruliad space. R U L I A D. And Ruliad space is basically the entire universe of abstract concepts, um, abstract. I'm not sure if he means specifically linguistic concepts, but the most interesting part about LLMs is that they're the, the like what they're a search. They're basically they've got the whole search space of the entire Internet all into one algorithm uh, that's hosted on a computer in high dimensional or yeah, low dimensional space, like the, the vector space. Um, and it's got the, so every time that we're interacting with an LLM, we're querying the entire linguistic history of everything that's been trained on the LLM. And as the LLMs are getting more and more refined, as they're getting more and more larger, it's just like more of that Ruliad space is getting put inside of the, inside of the computer. Um, where do you think, like philosophically for you, where does that take us? Well, I think a lot about the way that we continue to shape um, models with our training, right? And so on the one hand, it's really important to me that we have continue to have really diverse training teams, mm. right? That's always been really important to me from a an experimental design perspective to make sure that we have um, large, diverse teams of humans generating this data Um, and putting like a myriad of perspectives in the mix, right? Um, On the other end of things, I often just wonder what we'll continue to learn about ourselves while looking into this mirror, right? Like if if AI really is like a mirror for humanity, um, what can we learn about ourselves in engaging with AI in this way? Um, And also I wonder over time how our values will shift, as a result. So if you think about where we're headed and um, content creation, I don't think I shared this with you in, in our first podcast episode, but 
months prior to finding and working at Invisible and entering the AI space, I started having um, thoughts and prior to ChatGPT even getting released, I started having thoughts and dreams about a world in which we could basically do text to video and mm. before I even like knew much about LLMs, how they worked or what was even coming in the future. And I started having dreams about a world in which you could like log on to Netflix, for example, um, imagine your favorite show, which no longer exists, like Friends, for example, um, say that you want another season of Friends. And there's, you know, a way through technology that you can say, make me another season of Friends and make, you know, put the comedic aspect up to 90%, mm. like turn down the drama to 20%, um, make it PG, make it PG-13. Um, I like had like a, just such a clear vision of, of that concept and what that would look like and what that would do to our consumption of content and engagement with content for lack of a better term. Um, now there are probably a lot of, um, there's technical work to be done to get us to that place. There's legal work to be done to get us to that place. But I do firmly believe, and I think it's really interesting now that I'm in the space, like I think we're rapidly moving in that direction. Um, and I think as a result of it, it will just fundamentally shift how we engage with consume content and how we um, almost rate it in terms of its value. So if you think about... Um, I was talking to someone recently and had two kind of analogies that we were thinking through. One was the rise of processed food, for example. And with the rise of processed food, um, you know, now everyone's like, oh my gosh, a local organic carrot. Like this is the, <laughs> you know, a prized item, right? Um, and you can think of fast fashion too, like, you know, quick, cheaply produced um, industrial clothing versus something that was, you know, custom handmade. Um, with like uh, organic fibers, for example. Um, and so I think we will just start to value lot, maybe even live performance um, much more highly because there's a, I don't know, like the je ne sais quoi of human interaction and what can, the unexpected, right? Like you just don't know what's going to happen mm -hmm. or what's coming next versus content that you've, you know, prompted and directed and generated um, which, you know, is nice and great to have at your fingertips, but it's not the same. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. There's a lot we can go into from there. So one thing that, uh, uh, popped out to me was spontaneity, uh, spontaneity of experience, uh, like right what we're doing right now, there's a sort of improvisational element to it. I love comedy improv. I love dance. I love all these things. And I think those things are going to become a lot more important for a lot of people as we continue down this path, which we, which you just mentioned, mentioned. Um, there's the sort of human element of content, uh, how much we're going to value it. Um, and so so with you, you know, working in this field, there's that spontaneity, there's the work you do, which is, I'm sure is very spontaneous, spontaneous and stuff like that. What have you learned so far to try to give our listeners a little bit of an understanding of where we're headed? Like, what have you learned so far about how to bring more of that into your life while this world, while you're working inside of this world that's that's like creating this? Uh, what have you learned about this in, in your own personal life? Well, I think there's an interesting paradox at play because um, the process of creating this technology and continuing to develop it, right, and bring net new capabilities um to ai actually involves like this massively spontaneous yes, um deep deeply um integrated and iterative um process and so you know with our hundreds one hundredth of ai trainers that we work with um and the many researchers that we work with we're often iterating in real time and making changes and exploring together. And so there is like this sense of exploring uncharted territory and figuring out how to get there together. Um, but yes, there's also the irony of, of doing that while you're trying to create something that's really consistent, right? <laughs> Brilliant. 
And so, and that, so from our, for our listeners to understand a little bit more about what AI tra training is, hopefully I can go into a little bit more. It's essentially what you're doing is you're doing, creating turns where the person training the AI is giving one part of the conversation and then they pretend to be the bot responding to that part of the conversation and then they go through and they have to make up a lot of this on their own, right? Yeah, it really depends, like the extent to which you're doing um, RLHF, reinforcement learning from human feedback versus like more SFT or a combination of the two. Um, but yeah, sometimes you're writing an ideal completion um, and you're making up kind of the whole thing or you're riffing um, based on the context. Um, but it requires a lot of creativity and more of sort of the SFT work that we do can sometimes involve playing both sides of the conversation. And so almost like splitting your mind in two and being, um, you know, speaking as if you are the person, um, in which case it's fine to make mistakes and fine to, to just oh, be you, right? And then pretending that you're the AI, which is like, you know, con a consistent voice with a particular style and tone. Mm, interesting. Uh, and so the voice part, how do you actually give it a voice? And what have you learned about your own voice or humans' voices in general from that? Yeah, um, well, with our clients in particular, they often have very specific um, personality guidelines and style and tone guidelines for model training, which is really interesting. And again, that getting to the point where we have those guidelines has also been an iterative and collaborative process mm -hmm. where there's been a lot of human feedback involved, right? Do people like the current personality and how it's behaving? Do they not? And right. So there's like an evals component there too, um, where you're getting human feedback of like, you know, this language model uses too many emojis or like the emojis that language models is choosing are not like, you know, it's kind of off-putting. Um, so there, you know, you can even get that detailed with it. So is there, I have never seen an LLM respond with an emoji. Are there, are there secret LLMs out there that are responding in emojis? And if not, can <laughs> we, can we train one? How do we, how do we fine tune a, a model to, to speak in emoji? Uh, I've never seen one that spoke entirely in emojis, but that might be a, a pet project for you. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. uh, can we talk about the the languages? How like uh, all all the different languages that we have LLMs for? Can you talk more about the the challenges and like of doing it in other languages or anything you've learned mm -hmm. about like not just English but any other languages uh, about this? Yeah, multilingual is really interesting, um, and. So training in multiple languages involves obviously needing a team of trainers who speak those languages and sourcing those people appropriately, um, but then also needing to check quality in those languages, right? So you kind of have to build the team appropriately to be able to have a view on the, that language-specific work. Um, now, different clients and different language models have different strategic priorities around um, multilingual training. And so some of this is dependent on our client's view and priorities and also how powerful their models currently are at mm -hmm. multilingual and translation um, with minimal input. And so some models that are more nascent need more support in the multilingual realm. And also some clients, I think, also see a, the opportunity for differentiation in the LLM space to have a really powerful multilingual model, because um, that is important, right? To do more than just English and be really inclusive um, in terms of your audience and people who can get value from these models. And so I think we're kind of in the very early stages of this. And I'm interested to see as 2024 goes on where prioritization of this specifically falls for our mm -hmm. clients. Mm -hmm. I have a great anecdote. Uh, one of my friends down here in Buenos Aires is uh, she's from China uh she's been filling me in on in china in general because it's the one of the places with the least uh ability for me to understand what's going on i'm a i'm a i'm a, I'm a student of the world i love to study a lot of different countries and and china's kind of been this black box because of the firewall because of all those different things so it's just been fascinating to talk with her but at one time she uses ai she uses um a lot of stuff in the West, but she also uses the Chinese models and such. Um, and so I had I, I wanted to show her chat GPT. And, uh, and so I took a picture of uh, something a blog post of hers. Um, and then I, I asked it to translate it into English. And it didn't it it translated uh, into Chinese. 
but then I asked her to write, read it, and she said it was it it, it didn't go into it at all. It kind of goes back into that or it didn't it didn't translate it faithfully. Um, mm -hmm. It had just hallucinated this this entire thing, um, which is uh, which is really funny. And this gets into uh, I want I would love for you to fact check sort of like with your understanding my my understanding of AI. It feels like the last fifty years of automations have been sort of you 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 know the input you know the output. There's going to be breaks. There's going to be breakages on that, but they're bugs. You'll be able to figure out what them what they are. Now we're entering a world that is, you you know the inputs, you don't know the outputs, and it's gonna and it, and and we don't really know what's going on inside. Um, is that accurate? If it's not accurate, what? How did I get it wrong? If it is accurate, what what are your thoughts on that? I think it's right and it's wrong. Like to some extent, you know the input, you get you do get a response. So you get to see that output. You don't always get, at least like the user typically doesn't always get to understand what, why the model chose that particular output at that particular moment in time. Right. And like, so to your point, it makes it much harder to debug or get to the root of something mm -hmm. as things currently exist. I'm not sure if that will always remain the case though. Um, and so I think as we continue to study language models and gain greater understanding of them, um, my hope is that we can sort of untangle the yarn ball a bit and have a much greater understanding of um, what leads to what, right? Mm. Whether it's like a one-to-one -one understanding or at least just like relatively speaking, understanding how to get to the root. Are you tracking the black box, the labs that are trying to figure out the different black box, how to understand what's going on um, in these things and get a kind of from that input to the output? Are you tracking? And like turn it into a white box? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. A little bit. I've had some interesting conversations with people doing research in this realm. Um, and I think it's a, a an interesting and compelling approach, but I haven't followed it um, too, too closely. Okay, so let's go into personal growth. As we, as you've been going through hyper growth, as you've had this experience of going on side of a rocket ship, um, uh, personal growth. I know that's very important to you. I know it's very important to your team as well. Um, and so, what have you learned uh, in this process related to personal growth? Yeah, um, I think there's a lot of like self management that has to occur through times of of rapid change. Um, you know, I manage a large team of. 530 plus people um, and, and many managers as well. So there's managing others and supporting them through that growth, but also managing myself through that growth. Um, I had a great conversation with someone on my team just this morning about the power of like con bringing together and concentrating your energy mm -hmm. um, and being consistent. There's something about being consistent Showing up on time, doing what you you say you're going to do, um, having that discipline that I think is really important. And it's often the first thing that goes out of the window when you're in hyper growth or you're feeling overstretched, right? You're like, you lose all sense of consistency. You're, you're tired. So you start making poor decisions. Uh, you stop showing up for yourself and others in the same way. It all kind of like compounds and can erode from there. And so I think it's important to have personal guardrails for yourself to make sure that you're getting the right inputs, you're taking care of yourself, like in the fundamentals for your yourself, your body, your life, um, and making sure that you can show up for other people. And admittedly, I didn't get this perfect for myself last year. Um, I definitely uh, had times where I really, I really overstretched myself. Um, I shared with my team that my word for 2023, I pick like one word theme every year. And my word for 2023 was presence. I really wanted to feel like I was present for other people, present for myself, and like also that I had a presence. And when I was setting that intention, I didn't really consider that uh, in order to be a strong presence, like a lot of energy has to go into that. And you can have a presence, but that it might not be a good one. And just like you can be consistent, but maybe with the wrong things. Um, and so I didn't really kind of fine tune that vision for myself. And so I went into 2023 being like, I want to have a presence. And I think I really succeeded in that, but I didn't take into consideration um, how much I had to give consistently in order to achieve that. 
And so there were times where the scales got off balance for me. And now going into 2024, my word of the year is wellspring and thinking Mm -hmm. really about like, how can I tap into an infinite source of like energy and inspiration in myself and really make sure that I'm grounded, my needs are met, that I'm um, a really good resource that my team can tap for their own growth and development. Um, I don't want to be needing my team as a frazzled, you know, I don't want to be a frazzled leader um, for people who have bandwidth challenges as well. Like they need someone at the helm who is really grounded and aware and a strong, consistent support for them. And so in some ways, Francis and I've talked about this a bit, but like you kind of have to treat yourself like you're an Olympic athlete. Like it sounds funny when you're like, I work at a tech company and I sit at a desk all day, but it's like, I get up, I get in a cold plunge, I work out, I meditate, I like, I do the things that I need to do to take care of my mind, body, and spirit. I like eat the food that I feel best in for my body and really um, put high quality inputs, right? And for myself to make sure that other people are getting high quality outputs. Mm. I really love what you said about wellspring, uh, infinite source, uh, but at the same infinite source of energy, while at the same time being grounded. Um, and there's also the sense of uh, you had said it before about p- a power of concentrating your en- energy and being consistent. Um, philosophically, how do you how do you find that? How did you how did you figure it out? Um, obviously, it's like not a it's like an ever going process. Like it we're and, and this is what I, I love about your story as well is that 2023 was about presence. Um, 2024 is about being a wellspring and it's like you choose these values and paradoxically whatever you choose will then show you a mirror of yourself about how you weren't thinking about it and we're in constant states of growth it doesn't seem like that process really ends except you know at the final end um but like how what's your take philosophically how do you find that infinite source of energy yeah that's a great question um I think for me, it comes back to thinking about times in my life when I was really starved for energy. Um, I know we've talked about this previously, but I was chronically ill for like a number of years in my life and and different chapters of my life. And um, there's this concept uh, of people call themselves um, spoonies when, when you have chronic illness. I don't know if you've heard that before, but it's like this idea that you wake up and you have a certain number of spoons imagine in your hand and every activity that you do, Mm -hmm. you like give one of those spoons away. Right. And so you have a finite amount of energy. And if you're chronically ill, you might only wake up with three spoons, but everyone else gets 20. Right. So like you have less to spend. Um, And I, I really identified with that for a long time. And I think it's a powerful analogy for people who are chronically ill to really get the point across to others that like, we're not all working with the same mm-hmm. ingredients all the time. Right. Um, we're not all starting with fully charged batteries every day, mm-hmm. but I really, over time, as I started to get better and heal and, and become more vital, I found myself mentally still trapped in the space of feeling like I had finite energy. And so I started playing with that concept and trying to break that down for myself to understand how can I, how can I prove that wrong for myself? How can I get out of that box or that mindset um, and, and reframe much of my life to feel like activities are actually giving me energy versus draining my energy? How can I redesign my life so that I'm engaging with people and things that are sources of energy for me rather than drains? And also, I'm also a very introverted person. And so I also had to challenge my conception that being around other people, speaking with other people was, you know, draining my life force, right? Like Mm -hmm. it actually, I found a way to have that um, give me a lot of energy. And so I think, you know, challenging my conceptions around that has been uh, crucially important for me. Um, And then also treating myself really well. Like there's part of that too. Like you need to give yourself the right ingredients to succeed. Um, It's not it's not magic. Um, so there are some mind tricks that you can play on yourself to generally like genuinely generate more energy and feel greater connection with others. Um, but beyond that too, like the, the bare minimum is important too. getting good sleep, being hydrated, all, all of those basic things that we know, but often push aside. Uh, it reminds me of the Zen saying, um, eat when you're hungry, sleep when you're, when you're tired. 
Uh, and that was what my, <laughs> my meditation teacher would always tell me is like, well, just you're tired, just go be tired. But that, and that goes into the next question, which is that you said you were managing um, 530 people or something like, like that. When we last spoke, how many people were you managing? Do you remember? Um, 200, 250, maybe 250. So yeah, some of that is, yeah. a, so, so the team has grown. Some of that is that the team has grown. Some of that is that my role and scope has grown, um, kind of in tandem. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if we're, you know, pushing 800 before we know it. Um, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting. Um, but it also means leading in new ways and finding sources of, you know, efficiency, right? How can I make myself known to people on the team and be really effective as a leader without being in meetings with everybody for 12 hours a day, right? Um, How did you do it? That's like the biggest question. <laughs> How did <laughs> I do it? Um, an interesting combination. I had, you know, I had the benefit of growing from manager level, right? So I had like very close touch points and relationships at the agent level um, and people that I still mentor and remain in touch with. And then from there, like the relationships grow outward. They, you have to also acknowledge as you grow as a leader that you are leading at diff a different level, right? Like I can't spend all day every day with 500 plus people um, as much as I adore these people, it's really my job now to invest in the managers who are mm -hmm. managing the leads, who are managing these people, right? Mm -hmm. And so the chain continues, right? And so now my my biggest effort is investing in the next wave of leaders and making sure that they're well-supported, that they're well-coached and guided so that we can have more and more and more great leaders and that the just as one, that's the way to do it in a scalable way, right? Yep. <laughs> um, I'm not yep. scalable. And so I have to find a way of translating um, my vision onto others and supporting them in being like the highest, most effective versions of themselves. So it reminds me of a thing that uh, my friend used to talk about, which is holding deep space. Because uh, basically when you're holding space, you know, people who are who are giving therapy and such, they're holding immediate space for this person right right in front of them. But then whenever you're doing what you're doing, whenever somebody's like uh, talking online a lot or anything like that, you're you're essentially like opening up your energetic field to a much larger audience. Uh, and um, and it's and it's, it's something that's really interesting. It seems like you've done done it really well and you're figuring out how to do it. I really love the piece about mentorship. And it's sort of like a layer that you have to build in order to kind of hold the deeper space for a larger amount of people. Have you been working with um, uh, the clients at all? Um, and if you, if you yes. can give like one, what's the best thing that you've learned from them about how to do it? Mm, working. Yeah. Dave and Mar have been wonderful mentors and guides. Um, mostly like the, the greatest benefit I've gotten out of working with Dave is that is his ability to cut through when I'm tripping out over something or struggling with a problem and, and kind of circling on something, he will just like cut through like a knife and remind me sort of like what's at the core of what I'm struggling with. Um, and it's something that I try to do for other people on my team um, and sort of embody mm -hmm. for them. So he's been great at modeling that for me. Um, a great example of that is sometimes people on my team will ask me a question and then we often ask, like, what's the question behind the question, right? I could just answer your question mm -hmm. <laughs> on the surface, mm -hmm. but I actually want to know why you're asking me that question. What's at the root of it? Because there's probably something deeper going on for you, for the team that we should, that I should have a view on and that we should diagnose together. Mm -hmm. um, and so the reminder to like, get to the root of it. A lot of it's very really tempting when you're in hyper growth and you're strapped for bandwidth to operate on the surface. Mm. Um, mm. It's really tempting mm. to do everything on the surface when you're tired, right? And um, so that drive to get to the root and really understand it saves you time in the end. It's the superior way to operate, um, but it's easy to forget that when you're moving fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, it reminds me, I'm rewatching this great series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis by John Verveke. If, if you or any of the listeners haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it, particularly if you have an interest in mindfulness, meditation, um, and also Western philosophy. It sort of brings together, he's a cognitive scientist, and it brings together 
thousands of years of both the Western tradition and the Eastern tradition as it relates to mindfulness and, and awakening from the meaning crisis. You know, we were talking about the kind of infinite generation of creativity that AI is going to have, and it's going to, you know, maybe lead to more uh, sort of search for meaning. Um, and so what you what he what he says is that sati, which is this word for mind, mindfulness, the word that that got translated into mindfulness is a sort of it's not it's not meditation because meditation is focusing down on one object of concentration um, and it's not contemplation which is contemplation is where you're going out and you're sort of going back to the what who is the witness who is the center where where is this thing what's going on here and sort of like going back and it's the it's the moving between those two things and threading the needle and so what you're saying about cutting through that feels like a very like get to the root of the thing right but then there's also it's it can be challenging to do that um, uh, because when you get to right to the root of it, there's both the blocker inside of us. And then there's blocker inside of the other person who, as well. Um, what, what's your take on everything I just said? Is that, is that resonate? Does it not? It really resonates. And, and I think to be a good leader of a large team, you have to be able to do both. Like you have to be able to widen your periphery and make sure that you're tracking the whole view. And my periphery needs to be so wide that I'm seeing the view for my team and beyond my team, for the company and beyond our company, for my client and beyond my client, right? Like I need to have a really wide field of view and know when and how to narrow it. And then yes, absolutely. There's a time to sort of zero in and strike on a problem and cut to the root of it. And there certainly are personal blocks that come into play for people um, in working through actual problems that exist on a team, but also like the personal problems that come up as a result of them and why someone, why the problem came to be in the first place or why someone's mm -hmm. feeling challenged by resolving it. Um, but I really try to approach those as meaningful development conversations with my team. Um, that, you know, my biggest, most important value is leading with curiosity, not just in the work that we're doing in AI training, but also in the way that we're shaping leaders. And so when there's a problem, um, the easiest first thing to do is just to get curious about it, right? Like, why does this exist? Or, you know, why are you meeting me with resistance? Mm -hmm. um, or why are we not seeing this the same way, right? So like, let's hear both perspectives and understand where we can, where's the Venn diagram, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so getting curious is a really helpful diagnostic tool and it can really help drive those developmental conversations because there's so much to uncover about ourselves and about others in a hyper growth environment. It's one of the reasons why I love working in hyper growth environments because it really necessitates that you grow yourself quickly to fit the changing and expanding needs of the organization. Okay. Yeah. There's a couple different ways we could go from this. The way you just said makes me really interested in the hyper growth because it's not only this company that's going through hyper growth, but uh, this company, the many other companies related to this company uh, are bringing about a revolution that will also necessitate people have very, very fast um, integration mechanisms. Uh, go, it kind of goes back to the awakening from the meaning crisis type of thing as well, because it's just like, the technical revolution that we're going through right now is is sort of unprecedented, in my opinion, since the invention of writing. Um, and so culturally speaking and individual speaking, collectively speaking, we're going to have to go, we are we are going to go through a hyper growth situation, I would say. Um, are there any lessons that the general public can can take from your understanding of, the, of going through this hyper growth? Are there any lessons that you can share about how to kind of do it in a grounded way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think aware cultivating awareness is key, right? So making sure that you're actually tracking what's happening. Like, are you, first of all, are you even like looking out of the window from the rocket ship? <laughs> like, that's number one. Are you even looking outside the window? Number two, are you tracking the landscape as it's going by or the airscape as it's going by? Um, that's another piece. And so something I I often coach my team and my mentors on is, taking time out, whether it's every day or every week mm. to zoom out, report to me, report back to themselves, like do a synthesis on what has happened because it's so easy to go day from, you know, day, day to day, week to week and not really track the lessons, track the movements, 
track the themes that are emerging. Um, the risk of moving so fast is that you just kind of speed over the lessons that are coming your way, right? And so you actually don't look, listen, learn, or integrate from the process. And so um, it almost necessitates that you have some time to slow down. It doesn't mean that you always need to be moving slowly. You can't, um, but carving <laughs> carving out some sacred amount of time and discipline around that to zoom out and integrate the lessons and track the lessons. There's also a lot of strategy that comes out of that, right? Like if you can do the zoom out and do the retro on your week or on your month, on your quarter, whatever, you can understand more and better about what went right. Why did it go right? What went wrong? Why did it go wrong? Um, we risk just, again, going back to that theme of like being too surface level and, and skating on the surface. Um, you don't want to be the type of person who's like, well, it just like worked out and I got lucky. Like then you have no repeatable motion around that. You didn't mm. learn anything. <laughs> you don't know. You don't know how to generate success in the future because you're just, you know, chalking it up to good luck and you're not actually seeing the moves that went into it. Um, and same with things going wrong. Like, yeah, sometimes things just happen and things go wrong and you don't always get to know why, but as much as you can do a retro and understand here were the pieces that were in my locus of control that could have been better, um, or here was the series of events as it unfolded, as I see it, it can be really helpful pattern spotting and allow you to maybe catch something partway through before it becomes really bad in the future. Mm. Repeatable motion. That ties in with sort of, you had mentioned something about probably about 30 minutes ago about sort of uh, somebody helping you when you're tripping out on something goes back to the hallucination question as well. Hallucinatory human beings, hallucinatory LLMs. <laughs> like, uh, uh, and it's so the repeatable motion, how do you know how do you know what, like, I mean, I guess you you answered it, which is the reflection piece. Like you, 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 instead of just moving forward and saying, oh, okay, all that stuff is great. We just went through, it, it was great. Nothing, nothing to look at. You go back and you look at what happened and try to connect the dots. Um, how, so what, and, and there's also the group dynamic as well. And then there's the hierarchy dim dimension as well. So there's the group, there's the dimension of being the hierarchy. You're more at the top of the hierarchy as well. How do you go about all those different pieces? How do you know when you're tripping and when you're not tripping? Uh, and I mean, I mean, uh, uh, just in terms of, you know, like uh, sober, sober tripping. Not, not yeah. When I'm like, I like to think of it as like cycling or you think of like a bit of like a broken, a stuck record. Right. Um, that's how I know that I'm, I'm not diagnosing properly or like moving mm, through a problem the uh, way that I should is if I'm cycling on it at the same level and I'm kind of like going around and around and I, and I can't cut a layer deeper or really understand what, how, you know, what's at the root of it. And so if I'm cycling on the same level or I'm stuck on it and like ruminating, um, that's the number one signal for me that I haven't processed it all the way or worked through it all the way or gotten to the root um, and though, and so it's a signal to me to do more work either on my own to do that or call in support from, you know, a mentor of mine to help me work through that and talk it through and then kind of like put it to bed. Yeah, that's great. And again, it reminds me of John Brevicki's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, where uh, it's uh, he talks about the nine dot problem, cognitive science problem that uh, I won't go into it, but essentially we have a frame of how a thing works. And then mindfulness, sati, meditation and contemplation can help us to break the frame, either be by going into it or going out and expanding out and sort of going in between those different strategies. I really like that. Um so I would love the last 10 minutes or so to just do like a, a rehash of knowledge management because I've been seeing your, your team and you you think about knowledge management in this really interesting way. What's the biggest le lesson that you've learned about knowledge management in the last six months or so? I mean, first off, it's really hard, right? <laughs> like knowledge management in that hyper growth environment is really, really hard. You have processes that are changing on an hourly or daily basis, right? You have new people joining the company every week. Um, it is really challenging to keep people on the same page and also capture what's happening and why. And so 
one of the biggest lessons for me has been around prioritization um, of knowledge capture because I previously, before coming to Invisible, worked at a company where I had the great benefit and joy of being able to help document the entire operations of the business and move us from um, Google Drive to we, we were using Coda and um, worked with my previous boss at the time to and my team to just generate a page for like every process that we ran mm. as a business. It was perfectly organized, perfectly executed. It was so satisfying. You know, everything was, we weren't in hyper growth, right? So we were moving at a slower pace, a slower rate. And we were able to essentially have like a, a recipe for everything we did in the business. Um, and that was wonderful, right? Uh, we're not in the place where we can, possibly catch up <laughs> with that. And so there's a level of prioritization that must occur of like, what is the crucial critical knowledge that not only I I need to know and my team needs to know, but maybe other people. And so when I think about like at the director level, um, I thought about, okay, what's something that I did within my team that worked really well, that had like strong principles behind it and a good framework that I can like pull out from this experience and just get into a document so that the, for the next director who encounters this in two weeks, they don't have to start from zero. And mm -hmm. maybe my process isn't perfect and the most refined, but they at least can stand on that stepping stone and refine it further and make it better and take it from there. And so there's almost like a torch passing component. It's like, what's the minimum viable knowledge that, that we need to Ooh. have on record? And then you like pass the torch from leader to leader as people are facing these situations where this knowledge can be applied and then you kind of like refine collectively from there. That's beautiful. What do you think about the tool ver the tool versus practice versus person uh, dilemma and knowledge management? Because we've got all these tools, uh, mm -hmm. but is it the tool itself? If it's not the tool, what is it? Is it the perception that you have or is it the the, the knowledge sharing? What, what's your thoughts on the tool versus just the the, th the thing you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. I thought about this quite a lot. I think we're at a point in time until AI is just like fully integrated in our lives. Um, we're, we're currently still at a point in time where I feel that it, it has a lot to do with the person and their framework. Mm -hmm. um, I used to hire process-oriented people and screen mm -hmm. process-oriented people and, and train and test process-oriented people and teach them how to think like sequentially, right, in that way so that they could work through like work through a process or a problem and write it out so that it can be repeated without error by virtually anyone else. Right. Mm. And you kind of like reverse engineer pro your problems. Um, so I think humans are like the, the machinery and the filters that that goes through. And then you put that into the tool currently as it exists mm -hmm. as the repository mm -hmm. um, that may change in a future state where maybe a language model is, that filter for me. And so if there is a language model that's always listening to me or listening to my meetings and knows my preferred framework for capturing knowledge, um, you know, I could see that transforming quite a bit in the next five to seven years, um, which would be really interesting to see. And I wonder what we would gain versus lose uh, <laughs> in the process. Uh -huh. Um, um, I think a lot about taxes. I was I was talking to someone earlier today about the tax on like activities, right? And so when we talk about like you and I were previously talking about how to concentrate and focus your energy, one of the ways that I've been able to do that for myself is by kind of auditing my life and my time mm -hmm. and considering, you know, what where is there a tax that I'm not happy to pay, right? Like I'm happy to pay my property tax because. I love where I live and I'm delighted to be here and it's on a piece of land that I love. Uh, I'm not, there are certain taxes that at this point in my life, I'm not happy to pay. Like drinking is one of them. I don't drink anymore because that's a tax I don't want to pay. Um, I want some level of consistency in my life. I move my body every day because um, being, feeling stiff and stagnant is like a tax I don't want to pay. Um, and feeling stiff and stagnant in my body makes me stiff and stagnant in my mind. Right. And so um, I just, I can't help but wonder what the tax would be on uh, fully automated knowledge management. <laughs> yeah, interesting. It goes into the creativity process as well, or the creativity, the future of creativity as we're heading in. And I was having a, a conversation with my friend earlier today about it. 
you know, because it's all c- comes down to autonomy. Right now, it, do- it doesn't feel like the LLM has much autonomy. Uh, there, I know there are a lot of people uh, working on on giving it autonomy. Doesn't feel like, but if it does get to autonomy, and then creativity, the the knowledge management piece, the fully automated knowledge management, um, and it's it, it's it's going to be it's going to be a wild world uh, very soon. Like the 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 rate at which we'll have to adapt is going to be is going to be quite interesting. And what what we lose is is the tax you're talking about, um, and that uh, is hard to look into, and and uh, it's hard to peer into the future on on exactly what that will look like. Um, how do you define autonomy? I'm curious, like oh, that's giving a good question. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm curious as humans, if we'll ever fully give AI or a tool full autonomy. Well, <laughs> the, the follow up question I would ask to that, I want to get to the, the question you ask is like, well, uh, how would we stop humanity from doing it? Because uh, somebody's going to try to do it. Um, and uh, uh, so Autonomy. Uh, so the difference is that in order for me to engage with any of the LLMs out there right now, I have to start with my own into uh, my own will to engage with that. Um, now, I guess it does have a form of autonomy because it's going through some sort of prompting in the background and it's choosing what are the best prompt, prompts and stuff like that. I guess that is a form of autonomy. Um, maybe it's the current instantiation. But I, I am not able to go and say, hey, robot friend, go um, go make me a digital cake uh, and just don't ask me another question. Just go and do it. And then gets yeah. the three. I think like there, it begs a deeper question about what how we define autonomy. Like, does an animal in a cage have autonomy? Um, mm. Kind of like maybe to some extent or does like an animal in a zoo have autonomy? Like yes. you start to think about like, what is this? fear of autonomy that someone or something has been given but all of us to some extent have bound like we're still on planet earth right there's a boundary here right <laughs> so i think well, there's still <laughs> i think there will still continue to be boundaries and humans will have a say like that that's mm-hmm. kind of the future of alignment and super alignment right is like creating uh better checks and balances and boundaries for these models Ooh. Yeah, that'll be a, the next next podcast we do. Um, uh, <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, and how can people find out more about what you're working on? Uh, what can you uh, share with the invisible people, invisible team about uh, about what you're working on? And how can they get in touch? Oh, well, if you work in Invisible, I'm just a Slack message away. So <laughs> please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, if you're outside of the invisible sphere, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, but I'm, I'm an open book and my door is always open. So, um, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning into plain sight presented by invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. And if you're interested in learning more about how invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.